0: All right, reading from John. Is this on? All right. Uh, Chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. The great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw the crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. They sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did, not, he did the same with the fish. When they had all, that they, when they, had all they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who, who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again through the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you so much. We just thank you for this day that you've given us, another day to come here and and just gather together and have communion with each other, Lord, and and hear your word. We pray that you would open up each of our ears and our minds and our hearts to hear what you have for us, Lord, that we can take that home and and apply it to our life and live a life that's more Christ-like. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Matt. You can be seated. Uh, So what's interesting about this is of all of Jesus' miracles, I mean, we we could popcorn it and just talk about all the cool miracles. Of all of Jesus' miracles, only this story is found in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the only miracle of Jesus that's found uh, in all four Gospels. You think raising Lazarus from the dead, pretty cool? Nope. Uh, Last week, uh, healing the man who'd been crippled for 38 years? Nope. You know, the, the, the lepers, cleansing the lepers that go to the temple and they're spot free? Nope. But Jesus is handing out free food? Yep. People get excited about that one. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all managed to write this one down. And I wondered, why is that the case? Why, of all of Jesus' miracles, the mighty things that He did, why does this one stand out? And I thought, I think it's because for the majority of people, for the majority of human history, most of our time has gone to handling logistics. Like, what am I going to eat today? For most of history, for most of the world, most people, most of life goes toward logistics. What am I going to eat? Where am I going to get clean water? Where am I going to sleep? And even for for the majority of the world today, lots of people live like that Um, in a more desperate sense than we can relate to. How am I going to eat? How am I going to get clean water? Where am I going to stay? Uh, we definitely see this with babies. You know, are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You could Google this. It's this, like this, this pyramid of different levels of needs that we need as people. And at the very top of it is like self-actualization. I'm using all of my gifts as a human being. I'm living into this sense of destiny or identity. But at the very base, it's, it's food, water, shelter. And that's our kids. They got to eat. And if they don't eat, they're going to let you know. Uh, they got to go to the bathroom, and they need to sleep. Um, This stands out for me. You can see the bags under my eyes because we're still in baby land and still not totally sleeping. Um, Most of our life is figuring out how we're going to take care of the basics. And even on page one of the Bible, God deals with this with Adam and Eve. He tells them where they can get their food. He tells them how they can eat and how they can live. And the thing is, the text tells us in this particular miracle of Jesus, it's not like they're in a thriving metropolis where there's a, a diverse economy. They're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, about as northeast as you can get in Israel, and they're among, he's among working people. It's a, it's a fishing community. And so this great crowd of people who have followed Jesus have followed him, and because they're not working, there's a great chance they're not eating. And Jesus has come, and like a teacher of history, he sits down on the mountain with this beautiful valley before him and the Sea of Galilee behind him, and the people are coming in mass because they want to, they want to be around Jesus. And it, the text tells us they've, they've heard the miracles, especially of him healing the sick, and they want to go wherever he goes. And as far as John's gospel goes, this is the, the biggest crowd uh, that has followed Jesus. There's a lot of attraction, and they've, they've come to him. And when he sees the crowd coming, now, and remember, it says 5,000 men. The, the, the estimate, I mean, they're counting according to men and heads of families. It's much more likely this was like 7, 8, 10,000 people. A massive crowd of people were coming out to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is seated at the mountain, and they're, they're coming to sit at his feet and be students. And Jesus sees the crowd coming. And and the Gospels always give us these great details about when Jesus sees crowds. Uh, Elsewhere in the Gospels says, Jesus looked on the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The the helpless crowds. Individuals are smart. Crowds crowds are not. (laughs) He sees the crowd. he, He has compassion on them. And he knows what he's about to do for them. But he pulls Philip over. And in John's gospel, Philip is one of the first disciples. He's been there from the beginning. And he says, Philip, you know, where are we going to get enough bread for these people? And Philip, of course, you know, doesn't have a great answer. What's neat is Philip is from the closest town, Bethsaida. They're near Bethsaida. That's where Philip's from. And he's like, maybe he's looking out at his cousins and his mom and dad and he's feeling some anxiety about, how are we going to pull this thing together? Jesus, I don't want him to be a bad host. He's like, even if, we, even if we had enough money, we couldn't buy enough bread in Bethsaida, this tiny little town, for everyone to get a bite. And Jesus knows what he's going to do. But you have to think, you know, Philip had been there from the beginning. Philip was at the wedding in Cana when Jesus made 180 gallons of water into 180 gallons of wine. You know, Philip was there. Last week, when, when Jesus healed the man who'd been chronically crippled for 38 years, this guy's sitting by the pool waiting for someone to help him in so he can be well. Philip's been there from the beginning, and you think, come on, Philip. You don't think Jesus got, has something up his sleeve here? And we have the benefit of retrospect. We can think, oh, we would have known better. But Philip's just like us. Philip is, is slow to see the possibilities. Philip sees mostly limitations. Philip sees what can't be done and how it can't work out. And you want to ask him, come on, man, don't you remember? Don't you remember the things that he's done? But Andrew, on the other hand, uh, while Philip sees limitations, Andrew sees possibilities. And so Andrew's scanning the crowd, and he sees a little kid with a sack lunch, and he goes and he says, hey, would you mind sharing that with Jesus? Um, Andrew says, I don't know how far this can go, but let's give it a shot. Andrew takes what he's got to offer, which is really just what this little kid has to offer. I don't think he's being a bully here, stealing, like, food from a little boy. Um, But he takes it to Jesus. And you think, what a measly gift. A meal that a little kid could carry in his sack lunch out in the country, they offer it to Jesus, wondering and hoping, what what might he do with this? And I think this picture of, of Andrew and of really this little boy... Bringing what they have to offer gives us a picture of Christian generosity. Andrew could have taken a scarcity mindset. He could have said, well, I found I, I talked this kid into sharing lunch with me, and at least the two of us are going to get some food. He could have taken a scarcity mindset and hoarded it for himself, but instead he took the little that they had in their inventory together, and they took it to Jesus confident that, that he could do more with little. Confident that that Jesus could do something miraculous. And Christian generosity said it's, it's better to have little with the generous mindset and have an abundance mindset than to hoard for yourself. Which is why from Israel to the early church and even the church today, generosity has been one of the hallmarks of people who follow Jesus. In fact, generosity has been evidence of salvation. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, who had been exploiting people for their money and He met Jesus, and he started paying everything back four times what I've stolen from people. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and possessions. And so Christian generosity, taking what we have to offer and offering it back to God has been a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. It's been a hallmark practice. We can give generously because we know that God knows what we need. And we can give generously because God has been generous with us, um, One of the interesting things that I see in this is we've been talking about John's gospel. We say that we see in Jesus, what we see in Jesus is true of God. Jesus is what God has to say. And as we see Jesus looking out on the crowd and anticipating their needs, it's worth pausing on the fact that, one, Jesus knew their needs, Jesus validated their needs, and Jesus was going to work to take care of their needs. And so you think about your life, the minuscule details that you worry about, that you at times think, well, I'm not going to pray about that because it's not like spiritual enough. This is as practical as you get. People need to eat. Jesus knew of their needs. He validated their needs. And he was making provisions for their needs. Now, I think the ordinary provision of God to care for our needs is work. God gives us the ability to do stuff. God gives us the ability to use our skills to provide for our needs. This is a good and right thing. It's only twice in Scripture, you know, we see, uh, well, you can think of a couple of times, uh, God sending the ravens to Elijah, the manna and the wilderness, and then Jesus here doing this extraordinary provision. It happens a couple of times, but that's not the norm. The normal means of God's provision is giving us the ability to work. And this is a good thing. If you don't, you know, this is in the New Testament, if a man doesn't work, he won't eat. The ability to work and yield results is part of God's provision for us. But as soon as the people saw what Jesus had done, they wanted to institutionalize it. They wanted to take him and make him king by force. Like, man, a king who does all the work for us, this is fantastic. And while Jesus knew their need and validated their need, and in this case provided for their need, he wasn't willing to be uh, bossed into it, into doing that on repeat. Jesus still had an agenda of his own. It was his mercy, it was his grace that he chose to care for these people's needs. He didn't let them co-opt his strategy. It's the mercy of Jesus that we see this, but it wasn't going to be his complete agenda. As we see Philip and Andrew, we see ourselves in this text. Philip, who was slow to believe even though he had walked with Jesus, and Andrew, who's quick... To see possibilities, And I wonder, as you think about the text, which one are you? Are you a person, when you think about your life with God, are you a person who sees possibilities? I know He's going to pull through. We're doing our part, but I don't know how it's going to come together. But I know that He's going to take care of us because He's been faithful in the past. Or are you a person who just sees limitations? And maybe you're like me and you're a little thick scold, and it takes a while, even when you've seen miraculous provision to trust that God has good things in store for you. Which of those are you? They would both walked with Jesus. They'd both seen miracles, but they had a very different response. Jesus takes this gift from the little boy delivered by the hands of Andrew. And notice how similar to communion it sounds. He took it. He gave thanks, and he distributed it to the people. In the other Gospels, Jesus hands it to the disciples, and they hand it out. But in this one, Jesus does the distribution himself. It's, you know, it's, it's been so cool. Different ones of us have served communion, and I've heard from people what a blessing it is to put bread and juice. You don't put juice in their hand, but you put the bread in their hands. This is the body of Christ given for you, and it's a blessing to serve each other. Can you imagine being at the seaside that day and Jesus is walking around breaking off fish sticks and handing you loaves of bread? Wow. The guy who turned the water and the wine, the guy who raised Lazarus, he fed me lunch one day. And you think again about the beauty of the incarnation. At the most basic level of our needs, lunch, Jesus acknowledged the need, he validated the need, and he met the need himself. He didn't have to, but he did it. He loved them. He took it, he blessed it, and he distributed until everybody was full. His provision wasn't like just enough, it was extravagant. They were stuffing themselves, and they had leftovers. And Jesus in his extravagance was still not wasteful. And he told the disciples, I want you to go out and pick up, pick up all of the extra bread. And what started out as something so small that a little boy could carry it in his lunch pail turned into something that took 12 disciples, one basket for each of them, as a reminder. Man, they could, feel, they could feel the weight of the bread in their hand, and they remember how it started. He provided for them in ways that were that far exceeded expectations, It was beyond ordinary means of provisions. It was extraordinary. Jesus was delighted to do that for them. They needed to remember. I think we're slow to believe, and we're slow to trust, and we're slow to count on God's faithfulness for a couple of reasons. One is I think we fail to acknowledge where our blessings come from in the first place. We fail to acknowledge... Who gives us the gift of life? Who gives us the ability to work? Every good and perfect thing comes from above. We forget our blessings. We're slow to believe, slow to count on the faithfulness of God because we didn't say thank you. We didn't acknowledge His goodness in the first place. And the second reason we're slow to anticipate the faithfulness of God is because we fail to remember it. We fail to tell the story when it happens, the things that God has done in the past. We say thanks in the moment, and then we move on. They're no longer a part of our memory. We're born Phillips, but by God's grace, by the work of the Holy Spirit, we can become Andrews. People who aren't tied to limitations, but people who see possibilities. And and there are four invitations here in the text. How do we become an Andrew, someone who's anticipating God's faithfulness? The first thing is to remember the past faithfulness of God. Look back on the things that God has done for you and tell that story again and again and again. When Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and they'd gone through the wilderness and they're on the verge of entering the promised land, in Deuteronomy 6, Moses is giving instruction. He said, you guys are going to have kids and they're going to have kids and they're going to have kids and you're going to forget why we're such a peculiar people, those of us who follow Yahweh. And I want you to tell them the story. When your kid asks you, why do we do this or why do we do that? I want you to tell them, it's because we used to be slaves in Egypt. And the Lord delivered us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Israel for generations said we were slaves in Egypt, even though they weren't. It was their ancestors. They identified with all of the ways in which God had been faithful to them in the past. And they brought it into the present. And by calling to mind what God had done in the past, they anchored themselves and gave themselves hope for the present. Tell the story. What has God done for you? How did he show up for you? There are stories that I'm not quite ready to tell, uh, even about launching this church. Like, wow, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. There's been a miraculous provision of resources, of people, of encouragement, You know, the vulnerability, those of you who have launched anything new, I mean, you get how vulnerable it is to be on the edge of wondering if this thing is going to (laughs) work. And there have been days where where I've thought, oh my goodness, why did I even start? I do not have this in me. And there have been days where it has turned on a dime. And I know it's because people are praying. I'm going to tell that story for the years to come about how God has been gracious in His provision. How do we become Andrews? One, we remember God's past as past faithfulness. The second thing is we anticipate God's future faithfulness. We look to promises even we see in Scripture. When we're given to discouragement about the state of things in the world, we look at the end of the story. Revelation 21 and 22. The way things are right now will not be Forever. God's going to come. He's going to heal. He's going to wipe away tears from eyes. He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. He's going to undo everything that's been done by our rebellion against our Creator. We anticipate the faithfulness of God in the future. And three, we assume the faithfulness of God in the present, even when we can't see it. Paul said, and it has become cliche, perhaps it's been abused in all things, In everything, God's working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. In everything, even the stuff that stinks, he's working for good. So why wouldn't we assume the faithfulness of God in the present? Lord, this stinks. I don't know how this is going to work out. But you've been faithful to me in the past. I know you're going to be faithful in the future so I'm going to take on faith that you're being faithful even right now in ways that I can't see it. And maybe you'd even say, God, you're working on me while I'm working on this. God is faithfully at work in your life. What if you took that as a given? That even when things are at their most discouraging, the Holy Spirit is at work to bring about good things in your life. God is faithfully providing for you even right now when you can't see it. We need to remember the ways in which God's been faithful in the past. We need to anticipate and our, encourage ourselves with the ways that we can count on God being faithful in the future. We need to assume that he's being faithful in the present. And then number four, we need to offer what we have with thanksgiving and trust. What's interesting about this, about this passage is that Jesus didn't create something out of nothing. It wasn't like he pulled a rabbit out of a hat. This miracle started with a kid's lunch. He took the little bit the kid had to offer, he blessed it, and he multiplied it. And this is what's, what's extraordinary about us, is that God invites us and includes us in the ways that he's being faithful. And God may have given you things that will bless the multitudes. When the kid's mom was packing lunch that day, I'm not sure they were thinking when he came home he'd be a bit of a hero. But God took that little lunch that the one kid had to offer and he used it to bless the many Take what you've been given, offer it with thanks and trust, and assume that God wants to use it, not only to meet your needs, but to bless others. The point of this whole story, and I really wish I could have preached all of John chapter 6, because it's extraordinary. The point of this whole story is not lunch on one day, although there's something beautiful in it. The point of the story is was that in the same way that we hunger for bread? And we do. I'm thirsty right now. I didn't, I didn't drink enough water this morning. Sorry, I had coffee. In the same way that we're thirsty and we're hungry, we're grouchy if we don't sleep. We're aware of our biological needs. We have these greater needs, which is why the church for, for millennia has fasted. Putting ourselves in a position of vulnerability where we're aware of our biological needs as a clue toward these greater spiritual and emotional and relational needs that can only be met in our provider and our maker. In the same way that Jesus miraculously provided this meal for these people, the miracle was a sign, it was pointing to this greater reality. And it goes on at the end of the chapter, and Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he uses those words, ego e me, I am. It's not just a simple verb. He's saying the the God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush, the great I am is here. I am. I am the bread of life. I am everything that you need. And whoever comes to me will not hunger again. Whoever eats the bread I give them will not hunger. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. It was all a sign it was pointing to this greater reality of, wow, it's not just cool we got lunch. Holy cow, look at this guy who did this. He's the one, and the crowd recognized that the prophet who is to come into the world. It comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses promised the people, you think I'm great, but there's going to be another one like me and greater than me who's coming into the world who's going to blow your socks off. The people saw it, and they didn't know half of it. Jesus provided lunch on one day, but Jesus was much more than bread. Jesus was the bread that gives life, the bread of life, the true bread that comes from heaven, that he alone can can satisfy that deep hunger within us, that deep restlessness and angst within us that prompts us to do such crazy things hoping to find peace. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the true bread of heaven. Jesus often said when he preached, "said those who have ears, let them hear. Our prayer, when we talked about Jesus, the living water, is that God would give us the grace to hunger and thirst after the water that Jesus gives. In this passage, we could pray for a holy hunger and appetite for the bread of life. That we might find our appetite met in Jesus. That we might find our delight in the meal that Jesus offers, and we might be delighted to share what we've been given with others. Lord Jesus, may we be a group of people who so hunger and thirst for the bread of life that we smell like it. You know The feeling of going into a bakery or a coffee shop, and we carry that scent with us everywhere. May we be people who have so feasted on the bread of life that's in Jesus that we smell like we've been in a bakery. We smell like we've been in the presence of our maker. When people interact with us, may we be Jesus to them. Well, this is something we can't provide on our own. There are needs beyond our ability to, to fulfill them. So we ask that you'd give us this bread of heaven, that you'd give us a taste of Jesus, that you'd give us an increased appetite for Jesus and delight in Jesus that's beyond what we can coerce in ourselves.